Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Right Lane, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Each week, Times reporter Lane DeGregory discusses her stories and answers your questions. The focus is on craft. My name is Maria Carrillo, and I'm the Enterprise Editor at The Times. This episode of Right Lane is sponsored by the Scripps Howard Awards. The Scripps Howard Foundation and Right Lane are collaborating to spotlight some of the best journalism of 2019. The awards ceremony will be tomorrow in Cincinnati. This month, we're talking with some of the Scripps winners. Today's topic, it's time for you to die. That sounds really frightening, and the story we're going to talk about is frightening. It's about a prison riot in South Carolina that left seven dead. Just a reminder, we're recording via Skype, so bear with us if the audio is a little choppy. Joining us today is Jennifer Barry Hawes of the Post and Courier in Charleston, South Carolina. She was part of the team that produced this story, which was honored recently by Scripps Howard in the First Amendment category. Jennifer is on the watchdog and public service team at the Post and Courier. She was on the team that produced Till Death Do Us Part, a series about domestic violence in South Carolina that won the Pulitzer Prize for Public Service in 2015. She also was a Pulitzer finalist in feature writing for An Undying Mystery, a series she co-wrote that re-examined the 1944 execution of George Stinney Jr., a teenage African-American. Her book, Grace Will Lead Us Home, was published in June by St. Martin's Press. It chronicles the Mother Emanuel AME church shooting and its impact on the survivors and victims' loved ones. Thanks for joining us, Jennifer. And damn, you cover some really difficult topics. <laughs> true, that's true. And I'm happy to, to be here with you. Thank you. Um, let's start with how this idea evolved. So why did you want to tell this story? We wanted to tell this story because around the first anniversary, it was clear that we did not have a good idea of what had happened in this uh, historic violence. And so therefore, most of our readers did not either. And yet seven people had died and dozens of men had been seriously wounded. Uh, we felt that the public and, and the people who were killed uh, deserved uh, to know. Did you have any um, pushback from editors or any question about like whether these prisoners would be sympathetic characters? I asked because that's happened to me in the past, you know, um, and I also wondered, like, what did you hope the readers would take away or learn um, from the story? I didn't get anything like that from our editors. Our editors were always very supportive of the story, but we were cognizant of the fact that oftentimes readers don't care about prisoners. They don't care about uh, prisons. And that was a key reason why we decided to tell the story in narrative form versus uh, doing it more as a straight investigative kind of format. Uh, we felt that if people could really be there and, and see what was happening and know some of the, the characters involved, that they would care about them more as human beings. And that's really, um, that for me was an essential part of telling about what happened. So Jennifer, is this 
How close is this prison to where you guys are? Is it a private prison or a state prison? Um, this is, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I was just, we're just trying to get a feel for like the challenge of trying to, to, to do this story. So Lee is not close to us, really. It's a couple hours away. It's out in the middle of a vast rural stretch of South Carolina, um, which presented its own challenges in getting there. But, you know, really, it wasn't as if prison officials were going to take us there very often or certainly not let us go there uh, as we wanted. One thing that's important to mention is that in South Carolina, journalists are not allowed to uh, interview inmates in person unless it's part of some kind of organized tour. Uh, we weren't allowed to um, call them. The Department of Corrections wouldn't tell us which inmates were even there during the riot. They wouldn't tell us the names of the staff members who were there. So it was tricky all around. Um, the, the prison was in basically a news desert in the middle of um, the upper corner of the state. Um, but as I mentioned, it wasn't as if they were, um, you know, welcoming us in the door every day or something like that. It, the whole thing was just logistically challenging. So how did you start out trying to navigate that? Like, how do you go about finding guards and inmates who will communicate with you if the institution itself is shutting everything down? Well, the way we started with that was we began to get our hands on a few key things that let us see names. Uh, and those were things like um, a logbook. Um, there was a, an employee roster that day that someone slipped us. We were able to get some inmate discipline databases. We got our hands on a, a spreadsheet that showed the names of inmates who were under investigation. We got a list of inmates who had been um, wounded that day. So we started off with a few of these documents that had random names here and there that we could use, and we started writing letters to them. We wound up writing letters to more than 400 inmates across the state wow. uh, who had been there. Yeah, that was really the the crux of our communication, because as I mentioned, we weren't allowed to call them. We couldn't just go interview them in person. So we decided just to write letters because that was the way um, that was the one way where the Department of Corrections couldn't limit our access to them. Now, they could screen their letters. So even that was challenging because obviously a lot of inmates knew their letters were being read. So they would um, be very reticent to talk that way. Uh, it was it was really difficult, but we did wind up uh, eventually writing to about 400. You know, we would write letters saying, hey, if you know anybody else who might talk to us, be sh you know, pass my phone number along. Uh, if you know anybody else who was there, if you can help us out with who they were. Uh, and at one point we heard that one of our letters was posted in one of the housing units at um, at a prison. So it really was word of mouth. And again, just trying to find names wherever we could. Jennifer, you guys, you say in your explainer about um, the Department of Corrections not wanting to release documents, um, talking about how it was an ongoing investigation. Did you end up having to get your lawyers involved or um, was there any way around that? No, and our, our FOIA law is really not helpful in that regard. So it was it really proved to be more effective for us just to try to get the documents from other sources, which we wound up doing. Uh, there was one audit of the riot that was particularly crucial for us because it really went through uh, the causes and, and what happened that night, and the Department of Corrections wouldn't release it. But we were able to get it through another source. Um, we were able to get a number of things through other sources. Uh, and 
like I said, unfortunately, our, our FOIA laws aren't, aren't that helpful. Can you talk a little bit about those other sources and how you did sort of, you know, subvert the roadblocks out there or any advice for other reporters who are running up against this type of thing where, you know, these documents are out there, but you just can't get them? Yeah, that's definitely the trickiest part. And, you know, for me, some of it was just developing sources who trusted me, you know, and, you know, from working in Florida for a long time that when you've lived somewhere for a while, you just, you know, a lot of people and you've often worked with a lot of people. So some of it was reaching out to um, sources that I'd known for some time and beg for help. <laughs> um, other times it was just sitting down with people and really trying to convince them of what we were trying to do, that that the public and the men who were affected and the staff who were affected really deserved um, deserved this. And we were lucky that there were a number of people who agreed. Um, they, there were a lot of people who also felt that, um, that this story needed to be told. And thank goodness, because if not for them, uh, it would have been very difficult, much more difficult, um, maybe wouldn't have been told. Uh, so my hat's off to the people who really kind of stuck their neck out to get us information. Um, but that's the hardest part, I think, is is um, cultivating those sources uh, so they trust you enough. I mean, these are people who are really putting their uh, jobs and livelihoods on the line to help you. And I always try to appreciate that when I'm talking to them and to um, reassure them that yeah, I grasp the enormity of what they're uh, risking. Jennifer, how, how much attention did this get initially? I mean, was this the story... You know, when this first happened, did everybody write about it? Was it very well known? It was a big story when it first happened. Um, but it was one of those stories that, you know, gets a lot of attention right off the bat. And then it just kind of fades away. Um, you know, there's, like with anything, there's other stuff to cover. The next story comes around. Uh, and other newspapers in our state had, had taken cracks at different parts of it. Uh, so it wasn't as if you know, this happened and nobody was paying attention. The difficulty was in the resources that it demanded to really tell the story. And that's where um, I'm very thankful that our newspaper still will invest those resources in trying to tell these stories because it took a long time to write all those letters and field phone calls at all hours of the night. You know, there's there's just a lot of legwork involved. And it's something that's really difficult for local newspapers to support at this point financially. And I'm thankful that ours does. And that's what we were able to put into this that other newspapers in the state just weren't able to. It took about eight months to put it all together. And it was you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. You and one other reporter, right? The two of you together? It was Stephen Hobbs and I who wrote the letters and uh, really did the main narrative. Glenn Smith, who uh, is our editor, Glenn took on the piece about the gang economy, looking at this whole black market of contraband and how the gangs operate. 
And then Shauna Adcox, who works in our um, in our State House Bureau, took on the piece uh, that looked at what the legislature had done and what uh, kinds of um, budget requests the Department of Correction had made and that sort of thing. Yeah, I was curious about how many actual FOI requests did you guys as a team have to file for this story? Oh, my gosh, I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, a lot. <laughs> A lot. I'm sure the Department of Corrections was really, really sick of us by the end of it. Um, but, you know, that's that's what it took. And, um, yeah, it, I wouldn't even know. You know, that's a good question, but it, it would be dozens. I, I really couldn't tell you, honestly. I'd have to go back. It was always in your mind to write it as a narrative. And, and off of that, did you, um, you have a lot of debate about where exactly to start? In my mind, it always was a narrative, or it at least would include a narrative, because I, as I learn more about what happened, I just could not imagine being in there um, and, and just just the horrific nature of it. And I really like storytelling. I really like narrative writing. And so for me, I always pictured it that way. I didn't know if that would mean there would be a narrative that then included some other stories framing it that took more of a uh, you know, more traditionally investigative tone. Uh, and in the end, we we wound up with that kind of hybrid. We had the main narrative and then we had Glenn's story. Um, he took the lead on the gang piece, as I mentioned, uh, his piece and Shauna's story and some other pieces. And also we had um, really great photos and video from a Andrew Whitaker, who's a photojournalist on our staff who did a really phenomenal job. Uh, for instance, he took uh, some of the more poignant letters and made a video out of them, which I felt was a really important way to give voice to some of the men who were really affected by this and who live this out, you know, day in and day out. So it, it wound up that the narrative was the lead story as I kind of pictured it and, and Stephen pictured it. Um, but then we did wind up with the other pieces, pulling them out so that the narrative wasn't um, you know, you don't have those giant hairballs in the middle of it that deal with funding and that sort of thing. I, yeah, I wanted to ask, maybe this is a question you can address for your editor, too. I was real curious slash impressed that you were able to get this whole gang portion of it. How did you all know who was in what gang? Well, most of it came from the inmates themselves. And we put together a um, basically a document that tracked each of these men and what we'd been told and by who uh, about them, Part particularly the main players, obviously, because um, that was important. Originally, when we went in, we thought this must have been one gang against another, and it kind of just played out in all these dorms. But really, it morphed as it went from dorm to dorm and who was fighting who. Um, so it was really important for us to know who was a part of what gang. So we put together this document that was essentially an evidence file so we could say, okay, so-and-so told us that DeMonte Rivera was um, a gangster disciple or so-and-so told us that Michael Millage was XYZ. And then we could see exactly who had told us what and, and weigh um, the reliability of the source. And obviously, once we had, you know, five, six, seven, eight different people telling us one man was a part of one gang, then we felt pretty comfortable with that. Uh, and so we just, we had to amass a, a lot of feedback on that because we really wanted to be sure um, that was not something that we were gonna risk having wrong. Um, so we just hoarded in letters and phone calls and 
emails every bit of information we could find out about their gang affiliation. Um, and that really helped us to understand how it unfolded as we got more information about the actual, um, you know, moment by moment violence. Um, you know, Elaine and I were both struck by the female guards in this place and not just female guards, but like a woman, one woman in the middle of a, you know, 400 inmates or however many was. Um, did that surprise you? Or was that um, I, I just the, the fact that there are so few guards, I guess that was the whole big part of underlying some of the problems. But to me, that was shocking. You would have one female guard in a housing unit with 256 maximum security inmates. And the cell doors were left unlocked. The wing doors were left unlocked. So you're de essentially defenseless. You, you might have some sort of chemical spray. But that's not going to do anything for you when you've got that many inmates um, at all milling about, going where they choose. Uh, who knows how many have homemade shanks. And by all evidence, many, many of them did. To me, that was just terrifying. Uh, and to ask someone to do that job with, with no backup in the building, I, I just can't imagine going to work every day in that scenario, honestly. And to me, that was one of the most distressing things to learn. They're supposed to have two officers per dorm at a minimum, but it was routine for them to have one female guard, as I mentioned, for 256 maximum security inmates. That's crazy. Yeah, that mm -hmm. was my huge question. Like, who would want to do this job? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> no wonder they well, can't prison guards. Exactly. That's that's the whole crux of the problem is that it, it's like, you know, the chicken and the egg. You have this scenario and then you can't hire more staff because uh, they're afraid of going in and working there. And then it's a, a violent an even more violent place because you don't have enough staff. So it becomes this um, cyclical problem, which they're still dealing with today. It's, it's a huge problem. Um, even now, today, I've been working on a story about the second anniversary. Uh, still no charges. Same staff shortage problems. What happened in the aftermath? Did, had, did anybody from the state, have they been responsive? It sounds like not, but um, there must have been um, some pretty major reaction to, because as you said, so the story was reported, but you guys really were able to capture just how crazy it all was and how understaffed. And um, I just wonder what, what kind of reaction you had afterward. Well, we were really grateful. There was a, a lot of reaction and I was thankful that there was from readers because as I mentioned, you know, you worry with prison stories that people aren't going to care. Um, but I was very happy. We we received a lot of feedback, positive feedback in the newspaper, but also, um, you know, the ACLU went before a, um, one of our legislative oversight committees that was dealing with corrections and, and talked about the story. And then shortly after, um, Governor Henry McMaster called for about $100 million more for prisons to fund staff raises and security upgrades. He mentioned it in his state of the state address, or he mentioned the problem in the state of the state address, saying something like, this must change. And the director of corrections had requested hundreds of millions of dollars more to pay staff and for upgrades. And the legislature was paying a lot of attention to that. Um, but here we are now, you know, dealing with the coronavirus. And so you wonder once they come back, what's, um, you know, is, are they going to still be paying attention? So did you hear anything from the inmates after the project ran? Yeah, we heard quite a bit from inmates afterward. Uh, a lot of them said that they were impressed we had gotten so much detail because they, of all people, know 
how dangerous it is for inmates to talk and how they could be considered snitches and faced with prizes from that. So I was really, really glad to hear from them, A, to hear their thoughts on that they felt the story was accurate. And also many, many of them were just grateful to have that story told and for their stories to be told so that people are aware of what kinds of trauma they endured that day and the conditions that they're living now. Um, Jennifer, is there anything that we haven't covered that you think might be valuable to other reporters who might be trying something like this? I would just offer that to not give up when it looks like there's not a way to communicate with people. We tend to think automatically about you know the social media and the more technological ways you know that we can communicate and how all that brings us new tools. But I was really struck in this just how resorting to something old-fashioned like sending a letter really could open doors uh, that seem to be closed. So I, I just encourage reporters to uh, be creative and, and, you know, just not, not take no for an answer. All right. Well, thanks again for joining us. If, um, if you folks have a question for Jennifer or for Lane or you want to suggest a podcast topic, please email it to writelane at tampabay.com. That's W-R-I-T-E-L-A-N-E at TampaBay.com or find us on our Facebook group. Join us next week on Wednesday for the next podcast. This podcast was produced by Allison Graves. Music was composed and performed by Dan DeGregory. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.